Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. It's an exciting time of the year for UFC 249 tomorrow night, live from Jacksonville, Florida. And without a doubt, people are going to be looking to get in on the action. And we have the best place for you to go. My bookie, if you're the kind of guy who likes to bet a little to win a lot, try a parlay. For instance, if you like a couple of the big favorites this weekend, parlays are perfect because they let you bet multiple games together for a much bigger payout. My bookie has more lines and better odds for the player than any other sports book around. And if you join right now, my bookie will match your deposit halfway all the way up to $1,000. That means if you deposit $2,000, you'll get an extra grand in free money to play with. All you have to do is use our promo code capital BLV to activate the offer. Once again, that promo code is capital BLV to get your extra cash from my bookie. Bet, win, get paid. My bookie. Today is Friday, May 8th, 2020. Another Friday. Another Flashback Friday interview of the week. This one was a little bit more recent, and I choose this one because it is still very relevant in today's world because nothing has really happened since we discussed sports law and kind of the current situations surrounding these entities in baseball and in college sports. So today we're talking to California sports lawyer founder Jeremy Evans, who was actually recently on the cover of Los Angeles Lawyer Magazine for the month of April. So congratulations, Jeremy. That's huge for him. He joined the show this past January to discuss the Houston Astros sign-stealing scandal, his thoughts on college athletes getting paid, which they are now. Also uh, discussed very briefly the helicopter regulations behind the crash that killed nine people, including, uh, of course, the Bryants and the Antebelli families back on uh, January 26th. All that and more concerning sports law here on episode 191 presented by Belly Up Sports. Be sure to follow Belly Up Sports on Instagram, on Twitter, at Belly Up Sports. And of course, we're sponsored by TickPick. Head on over to TickPick.com when uh, everything returns to normal. See by using the promo code OSHO10, that's capital O-S-H-O-W-10, for $10 off your next order. Should you use TickPick? And if you're into banging weights, eating steaks, and sleeping aids, head on over to Mecca Nutrition Store. Dot com by using the promo code OSHO20, that's capital O-S-H-O-W-20, for $20 off your next order. Hit it, Hootie. Why uh, sports law? How did you get to starting California Sports Lawyer? Sure. So, uh, good question. Um, I appreciate you reaching out. So, I think with California Sports Lawyer, it was really, you know, I grew up, um, and I think always wanting to be a lawyer. Um, I think that was probably based uh, somewhat on watching Law & Order episodes and, and, and just sort of I think influences in my sort of younger part of my life where it's just something that I think was in, it was just in me, you know, like I just right. I think remember my mom asking me at a young age what I wanted to do when I grew up and I was like president of the United States and a lawyer. <laughs> and, so, and I, and her response was why, you know? And I said, well, and I was like five years old at the time or six years old. And she's like, she's like, why? And I said, well, I think one, cause, um, you know, I, I, I want to help people. And then number two, I like to argue. Yeah. And of course, and of course it's hilarious because I don't like to argue, <laughs> but I think at the time I was a kid and, 
Um, I think you definitely learn how to argue or how to get a point across uh, in, in, in really both of those professions. But um, so anyway, in law school, I initially had this idea of wanting to become a district attorney. And then that didn't work out, you know, just doors, you know, open in different places and that sort of thing. And so um, I had competed in this baseball arbitration competition, uh, which is um, at Tulane University down in New Orleans at the law school there. And it sounds kind of dorky, and it is. And you're essentially, you know, negotiating either representing the player or the club, and you're negotiating basically what the salary should be for the player when they're going through, um, uh, you know, because essentially a player is, is essentially controlled by the team in baseball for the first six years once he reaches the uh, 40-man roster. And then in the latter, the latter, the latter three, three years of that six-year term, um, they go through what they call arbitration. And so you're essentially negotiating what the player should be paid. And having gone through that experience, even in just an academic setting, um, it really kind of opened my eyes to, well, I can do what I love and get paid for it. Yeah. And at that time, I just, I had not thought of that. I was like, well, I enjoy courtroom work and I enjoy being in front of a judge and a jury, but I wasn't necessarily convinced that I wanted to do civil litigation. I just, the old saying goes, the civil bar is criminal, the criminal bar, criminal bar is civil. Um, you know, in the sense that um, there's a lot of fighting and I was just, I really don't want that. And of course, on the criminal side, I had done some work for the public defender when I was in uh, law school as an intern. And although I enjoyed the courtroom work, you know, you're dealing with basically people at the worst times in their life, right. you know, um, whether wrongly accused or not, it's just, they're terrible things. And so I think for me, it was just, I, I was like, life is just too short. And I, I really wanted to sort of chart my own path. And so after having that baseball experience, I was like, you know, I grew up playing baseball, obviously, and love sports, but I never really envisioned myself getting into sports or entertainment. Um, even though I was a big fan of those industries and, and, and the content and all that. But um, when I got towards graduating, I had had a lot of friends that kept encouraging me to like open my own practice. And to be honest with you, at the time, I really did not even fathom the idea, did not even, frankly, even know what it meant to open up your own, you know, law practice. I just, I had no clue. And so I think for me, I started to do some research, started to ask around, you know, read a bunch of books. Um, one of the books that I read gave this great piece of advice that said, you know, basically go out, you know, have lunch or coffee with five lawyers that you know, or five different business people that you know, that you respect, and ask them, you know, basic questions of how did you get started? You know, what's made you a success? How do you, you know, keep costs down? You know, all that, all that stuff. And I did that, and I probably ended up meeting with like 60 different lawyers over a period of about three months. And, um, and I, every time I would go to the five lawyers, I'd say, give me another five names. And so I would sort of do that and uh, got a lot of information, a lot of nuggets of information that, uh, you know, frankly, I think saved a lot of headache and heartache um, 
you know, as I started my career. And of course, with sort of the digital opportunities that are out there, being able to work virtually and not being so concerned with having a big office or hiring staff or having a secretary and everything being digital and not needing a ton of space. Um, you know, I think if I was born in any other era, I may not have opened my own shop. I just don't think the technology was there and um, the ease of opening a business, you know? And so um, all that being said, I had worked for the Superior Court for a year, uh, right when I got out of law school, you know, got my bar results, passed the bar, and then it was just basically like, you know, the, my one-year term at the, the court had you know, basically run its course, and I was just like, well, I'm going to open my own practice. You know, I've done the research, I've met with people, this is something I want to try, something I want to do, I'll give it a shot. And if I'm going to open my own shop, I might as well choose you know, practice area that, um, that I enjoy. So I chose entertainment and sports. And as far as how I came up with the name, that was pretty, was pretty straightforward. Yeah. I, I sat down, I sat down with myself and I said, Hey, I'm like thinking, I'm like, okay, well, how do people find lawyers these days? You know, it's through Yelp or it's through Google search or whatever. And so I said, okay, well, I don't want to be the law officer of Jeremy Evans. Like, Yes, I like my name and you know, proud of the proud of the name, but it's also like, you know, that my family gave me, but it's also like, eh, I don't want to be like everybody else. And it just sounds boring, you know? Uh, everybody does that. And mm -hmm. so I was like, okay, well, if somebody's looking for a lawyer in California, they're literally going to Google, they're going to type in, and they're looking for a sports lawyer, they're going to type in California sports lawyer. So I thought, okay, well, if I can reserve that name, I'll go for it. I just didn't think that through the history of mankind and through the internet that somebody hadn't come up with that at this point. <laughs> and so um, I, you know, reserved it, got it trademarked, and and it's it. I would say it's a great name because it's easy to remember and it's straightforward. And of course, the website, you know, is easy. You know, cslegal.com. Um, I would have gotten csl.com, but there's some Australian company that is in manufacturing, I think, that has that URL. But that all being said, um, it made it pretty straightforward. And, you know, here we are almost eight years later. So, yeah. That's a great story, man. I mean, I have a few friends who are uh, currently majoring in sports law. What's the uh, bar exam like? Because I feel like that's probably the most stressful thing in the world if you want to become a lawyer in any sense of the imagination. Right. Really good question. Um, you know, it's funny. When you're in law school, I got to be honest with you, you're, you don't really think about it. Um, that may sound crazy, but when you're in law school, there's this old saying that says that your first year, they scare you to death. Your second year, they work you to death. And your third year, they bore you to death. Right. And, and there's some truth to that. But I think overall, the point is that your mind is busy. And I was so involved with student leadership, and I was the student you know, bar association president. You know, was doing a lot of things for the school that really my mind was so focused on classwork and other things that it wasn't really until like my last, my third year, sort of second semester, we really start to think about it and start to do the prep work. Um, I'll say this: I think that a lot of people get a little, you know, stressed out about the bar exam. California is hard. Um, you know, they say it's the hardest bar in the world um, and definitely the country. And so 
it's funny because I've always said that the best law school in the country would be one that, you know, didn't have all the sort of the gimmicks and just said, we're going to teach you how to pass the bar exam and we'll make you a practice ready lawyer. I've always felt that if they could build that school and have like 90 plus percent passage rates, but not charge Harvard, you know, cost tuition, you'd have the most popular law school in the country. Mm-hmm. But of course they don't do that. And, um, my experience with it was this, it was that I went into it, you know, treating it like a job. I thought, okay, this is the only time in my entire life I'm going to be able to focus on really one thing and not, and not have to make an excuse about it. So for essentially three months I studied and, um, you know, took the bar exam. I did not take a day off and I was doing eight hours a day, you know, was just very committed to that process. Right reading and writing and studying and all that. Now, I did not pass on the first occasion, but, you know, like the old saying, you know, uh, this idea of that, you know, you sort of, you know, fall down, you pick yourself up, and you sort of learn from your mistakes, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, keep trying. And so the other, the other part of it was that I, I knew that when I went in to take it and pass on the sec time, that I was going to have to do something different. The issue was obviously not... I didn't, st- I didn't study or work hard enough, right? I mean, I was going every day, seven days a week for, you know, for three months. So effort was definitely not the issue. So I was like, oh, I need to change this up. And the thought came to mind of, you know, if everything about the practice of law is about learning and growing, the bar exam is the same thing. It's a very honest test. It tests, you know, knowledge that's sort of far and wide. And very specific, but you have to be good at all parts. And of course, now the bar is two days versus three days. So in some sense, it, it may even be a little bit harder because they're stuffing more subjects and more content into one less day. And the room for error is, is harder now because you don't have three days. Like you could typically go in on the first day, maybe you messed up, but you could make it up on the next two days, mm-hmm. right? And so the way that it worked when I took it was the first day was. Um, uh, three essays, three one-hour essays, and then a three-hour performance test. And then the day two was 200 multiple-choice questions, 100 in each session. And then the third day was, again, three one-hour essays and then a a three-hour performance test. Now I think it's six 30-minute essays and then one performance test and then 200 multiple-choice questions. Wow. Two-day period. But... So it's definitely a beast of a test, um, and it is, an, it is an endurance test, there's no doubt. But the one last thing that I'll say about it is that when I took the second time, my preparation methods were completely different. When I looked back at what I had done and the prep work that I had done, the major failing that I had was that I studied, I studied a lot, but I did not practice. This would be like reading a book on how to shoot a basketball, but not actually going out and shooting the basketball. Right. And so, so like for me, I was okay. Well, I'm gonna rethink this whole thing. And I, I what I li- ended up doing was, I literally instituted a plan of, um, I worked four days a week at the court, and um, we do a little bit multiple choice, mo- little, like a few multiple choice questions before. You know, when I got off from work, usually twenty to twenty five. And then, um, but you know, very little work during the week. And then Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I would literally go into the library in live testing conditions and time myself and take the bar exam. So, and I did that for like nine or 10 weeks, you know, just went in, did 
three essays and a PT, 200 multiple choice questions, three essays and a PT. Did that and ended up passing. So um, it, it's definitely a beast of a test. There's a ton of great people out there who have not been able to pass the exam. You know, California, as you know, has got a 50% passage rate. Right. And, and the, the statistics show that the more you take the test, the less likely you are to pass. So um, it's a difficult test, and there's a reason for that. You know, obviously to keep the profession, you know, obviously at the highest, you know, sort of upper echelon. But it's also a difficult situation because you have a lot of people who would be great, great lawyers, but they can't seem to get over the hump. Now, you say, to go back on that uh, first question, you said that you're dealing with people most notably like on one of the worst times, like in the worst times of their lives. What would you say has been your toughest case so far? That's a really good question. Um, I'm trying to think. I mean, I don't want to, I'm trying to think of what I can say and right, I yeah, can't think right. in terms of attorney-client privilege and all that. Um, I will say that um, when I when I was a law student, I had done, you know, obviously you do internship work and, you know, stuff like that. And I was working for a private lawyer at the time, just doing some contract work. And this might even been when I was actually in practice, like my first or second year. And, you know, maybe you're getting paid 50 bucks an hour, or, you know, 60 bucks an hour or even less than that. Uh, it may, may even been like $25 an hour. But as you're doing that, one of the cases that I worked on, which was really sort of key in me kind of moving away from uh, the criminal side, was um, I had, uh, was doing work for a guy doing some discovery, and it was like a child molestation case. Oh, wow. And, and it was just a terrible, terrible situation. Um, the facts of the case, everything... And, you know, it just, that sort of stuff, you know, I've got a big family. I just, I couldn't be around it. You know, yeah. I said, I, I can't do it, you know, and I just, I don't want to do it. I have a choice. I don't want to be around it. That was one experience. I think another one was I represented a client and it wasn't necessarily the facts of the case. It was a criminal case. It wasn't necessarily the facts or anything like that. The client was amazing, a really good guy, um, you know, good family guy. It was just a, a terrible situation that he got involved in. It was more what I didn't like was the experience that I had with the district attorney on the case. And for me, what I didn't like was the, the leverage. I didn't like that the... Um, the, the DA had so much power and influence. And this is typical for any negotiation. You're essentially going, basically, either begging for a deal for your client or you're having to litigate it in court, mm -hmm. you know? And I was just, I don't like that. I said, if I'm representing a client, I want to be on equal playing field or I want to at least have the opportunity for it to be equal. And now, of course, people would argue, oh, well, you make it equal by making arguments or through the facts of the case. That's all true. But I just thought, well, if I'm going to be making those arguments and putting that work in, I think I'd rather do it on the entertainment sort of sports side and do it where I have a little bit more you know, input and the client has a little bit more say. Because either way, talent is going to win the day and talent's going to get what they want or you know, the company is going to you know, get what they want. But it's, for me, it just sounded like much, a much better path. Um, but yeah, just dealing with uh, the DA in that specific case, uh, that's just, he just was not a nice person, uh, to put it lightly. 
And uh, right before the eve of uh, one of our the preliminary hearing, uh, he filed new charges against my client uh, and the co-defendant, uh, which were completely baseless, and the judge ended up throwing out those charges. Um, but it was just stuff like that. And then, you know, being I was a young lawyer at the time and, you know, being treated like, you know, basically I was not his equal and... Um, I just, I, 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 maybe a better way to say that would, I just wasn't, so it was just not a, not a good situation. Uh, I believe you. <laughs> good, good choice going into sports law. Uh, let's talk about yeah. sports a little bit. I wanted to talk to you about uh, Believe in Sports Law. I listened to a few of your episodes, uh, most notably the one about the Houston Astros discipline because of their sign-stealing investigation. Uh, what were your thoughts on the punishments that were handed down on the Houston Astros? Do you think that it was enough with firing or at least suspending on MLB's part, uh, suspending A.J. Hinch and Jeff Luno, and then, of course, Jim Crane firing them? Do you think that was enough? or do you think it was too much? Really good question. Um, I have a couple thoughts on that. You know, on the legal side, you know, we have these sort of terms and obviously have this, you know, built into our constitution and it's what makes really America a great country. I mean, it's, people say what makes America different. It's like, well, one, it's the electoral college. Number two, it's our three branches of government. You know, it's, it's the you know, sort of the, the um, separation of powers and and what we sort of have built out the Bill of Rights, right? Mm-hmm. And you're probably thinking, and the listeners probably thinking, what does that have to do with the Astro scandal? What has everything to do with it? Because one of those big pieces of of um, of laws for the due process, right? And it's like I think number one, people putting this in context, the Astros had um, been warned, as did every other team in Major League Baseball. I think it was in early 2000, or 2016 or 2017 not to use technology to assist in making game decisions during the game. Right. And this was you know, done with Apple Watches or iPads or whatever it was. And that letter was sent out to every team. And it laid out what the discipline would be. It laid out you know, there would be a $5 million fine at the max. So it was very clear not to do this. So I think knowing all that, the commissioner basically just follow, followed his memo. He said, okay, you guys violated it. We have proof of it. Um, and obviously they ended up admitting it and they had corroborating information from, you know, from the players whom they gave immunity for, uh, for their testimonies. And so we pretty much got what the commissioner laid out. He said, this is what I'm going to do if I find out that anybody's cheated and he, I'll commend him for following that and not going above and beyond. Because... The problem is, and if you want to compare commissioners, you look at Roger Goodell and how he handled, let's say, the Ray Rice situation, where on the books it said specifically you can only give out, um, I think, X games or something for whatever violation, right? Right. In that case, obviously, it was domestic violence. But it was very – the the rules were either clear – there may have been some leeway there, but I think the difference in terms of how the commissioners sort of played that out is – it's kind of an interesting study because they, you know, Manfred could have done work. He could have done more. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, he had the opportunity to do more, but he was just like, no, I'm going to follow the memo. I'm going to follow the rules I set in place. And that's due process because if somebody doesn't have proper notice about what the discipline is or what the policy is, well, then you really can't discipline or, or put in some sort of policy. You know, so it's like, I think he did a really good job on that. Now, could they have done more? Um, 
You know, on one hand, I kind of feel for A.J. Hinch a little bit in the sense that he did try to break down the system. But ultimately, I think he's probably kicking himself going, I could have done more and I could have shut it down, which I think raises questions, um, you know, more questions than answers. But ultimately, I do feel some, some, some sense of remorse for him because he seemed like he was a decent guy. And, of course, sadly, him and Dave Roberts, the Dodgers manager, are really good friends. And I think it was a week before the World Series when they played each other. I think um, it was either Roberts attended his wedding or vice versa. So it's just, to me, like even the personal relationships are complicated here. Um, I thought Jim firing both uh, Hinch and uh, Lunau was proper. Um, I could possibly see Hinch being hired again by another team down the road. Uh, Lou now, I don't know because he was even in a higher position of authority. And of course, um, that whole St. Louis Cardinals situation that happened when he came on the Astros and there was the Cardinals got accused of stealing the Astros information from their, uh, uh, their sort of analytics server. Right. Right. But then, but then the claim was that, you know, essentially Lou now had taken information from the Cardinals, and so they were trying to get it. <laughs> I don't know what the true story was, but um, I just don't know if Lunau is going to get back into baseball. Um, we'll sort of see how that plays out. I mean, everybody loves a second chance, but I think ultimately the commissioner did the right thing by not taking away the World Series, by not instituting more of a fine than what was allowed. Um, I think he was probably stuck between a rock and a hard place when it came to disciplining the players because the players union would have been all over it and you know it's it, it's a tough situation um which I, I totally get uh maybe some player discipline should have been given out i think the biggest thing that bothers me and from what i've been told and i think what everybody's been told is that supposedly the astros are going to give a team apology at spring training but i think uh what is bothersome for a lot of people uh, in the, I don't know if you saw Verlander's speech recently. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, that sort of stuff, I, I think the lack of remorse is the biggest, I think, issue for me. Um, and I don't know if it's just a timing thing, but ultimately I feel like something should have been said. And I don't know if the commissioner, you know, basically, I know there was like a, a moratorium on not saying anything and keeping things under wraps, but... I don't know. I think overall the commissioner probably did a pretty good job, and I think it's just a matter now of, um, you know, sort of what, how the players are going to react. I mean, I've always believed that sort of history is a judge in itself and that, you know, these players are going to have to go to, you know, the, the Bregmans and uh, the Altuves. These guys are going to have to travel to other places. And they're going to have to travel to the opposing ballparks. And I'm sure the fans are going to give it to them. Oh, 100%. And, you know, and, and so, and I'm sure the players, the other the opposing players will say some things too. And 
it's just extra added motivation, you know, bulletin, bulletin board material, so to speak. Now, you mentioned the players. I mean, MLB has to deal with uh, the fact that a new CBA deal is going to have to take place within the next few years. I forget what the actual uh, date is. I mean, with the players, do you feel like that had anything to do with the fact that players weren't punished in this situation? Because I also know that uh, Rob Manfred kind of made a deal with them to say, if you guys are brutally honest with us, you're not going to be punished when it comes to this situation. Yeah, no, good question. I mean, he definitely gave them immunity in exchange for... Uh, giving their testimony and you know and you have to follow that I mean you know you make a you know congr- contractual agreement with somebody you know um, and, and frankly how else was he going to get the information right right I mean obviously he had that John boy uh, Twitter post you know where it showed the video of him basically splicing together the times and what what's were going on of course there was the fan that did the analytics review which is somewhat ironic right oh, yeah. Um, analytics review of all the trash can banging and what it meant and what the batting averages did and and of course you had the video of Altuve saying don't rip my shirt off and <laughs> of course there's there's some controversy there of what that meant or whatever but but in terms of a factual basis where was he going to get the info from it's like okay he could have watched the games but I think he really needed that inside information of what went down and of course Mike Fires is the one who got you know, the, the brunt of, you know, he was like, he's the rat or he's telling on anybody. I applaud the guy because he, he, he should have, he's the one who did what everybody else should have been doing on the team of saying, no, we're not using this program. This is bad. Um, and or coming out and saying like, this is bad. And frankly, he wasn't on the team anymore, you know? So, um, but the point is, is that I think ultimately the players, uh, you know, they made that deal with the MLB, so, um, you know, it is what it is there. And as far as the, the CBA goes, I think it expires in 2021. Um, it, it maybe had a part in it. Um, I think it was more just based on Manfred needed information, and he exchanged, you know, you got to give up something to get something, right? Oh, yeah. So he said, okay, I won't prosecute you guys, so to speak, if you if you guys spill the beans. And I think my whole point I wanted to make on that is like you got all these guys getting immunity and yet Mike Fires is you know, getting like, you know, uh, you know, getting talked down to for it, you know, because he, he was the one that came out and said something. And it's like, well, all the other players told on each other too. So yeah. it's not like, it's not like, you know, Mike is, 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 is by himself in that regard. No, absolutely not. I mean, I feel like after that, everything kind of blew up. I feel like after the whole, like you mentioned, the whole John Boy video, like the potential buzzer scheme that's up in the air, they kind of determined that there was no evidence to uh, confirm that. But do you feel as, like, let's say theoretically that is true, the whole buzzer scheme is true with Altuve and Bregman. They're wearing uh, wires underneath their jerseys, and all the footage kind of makes him look bad. I mean, considering that they're already cheaters to begin with, it makes him look bad, like, by definition, you can't really say or like give them the benefit of the doubt here, saying, "No, like that's not true. That's just that's just hearsay." Like it, the footage kind of makes it seem like it could potentially be true. If it's true, what would your uh, uh, take be on a potential ban for Jose Altuve and company for the players? I, I here's my take on that is that the commissioner wants to move forward. The, the damage has been done right. in that sense and I think he, he wants to try to clean up the game and 
I think there's potentially a new policy that might be coming down that expands uh, the penalties and, and maybe more specifically defines what is cheating and what is not. I definitely could see that happening. If you notice that MLB was very quick to shut that down. Oh, yeah. Right, right or wrong, but and I actually I think it's probably a good thing because um, if Altuve and, and Bregman and those guys were using devices, is it worse than banging on a trash can? I don't know because for me, you have to look at it from a very practical standpoint in the sense of was there an added benefit? Well, the problem is, is that the reason why they were so, if you look at the history of it, every team gets access to a center field camera. I mean, this is the camera that we watch from, from, you know, from television on the broadcast. Yeah. It's the, the camera that's over the pitcher's shoulder looking into the catcher. The difference is, is the Astros went in and said, we want a live feed of that. And then they installed a camera to watch the live feed. And then now normally you're thinking, well, why did they use such a primitive um, you know, you have all that technology and then you use a primitive thing of banging on a trash can. The problem is the, the sort of the absence of 5G technology, right? Like, it's almost impossible. It's easier to bang on a trash can to relay a, a message than it is or to yell at somebody or whistle than it is to, like, get into a computer and press a button and send that message to the player and then do it right in time so it shocks the player before he's hitting. And, of course... The other problem with that is anybody who's a baseball player from a hitting standpoint, the more I think about it, if I'm in the box, the last thing I want to do is something shocking me right before the pitcher. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, you know, I mean, so whether or not I think I think baseball would be better by giving the discipline like they did to the managers or whatever and moving on from this, um, I don't think anything's going to change, um, you know, unless some smoking gun you know pardon you know pardon the sort of cheesy reference but unless there's a smoking gun out there that's like hey uh you know you know or or sort of some sort of admittance that that they cheated and they used you know technology um i think everybody's on high alert right now i think this is going to be one of those things that either we'll hear about it down the road or it'll be just one of those baseball stories that's like okay this is what happened but this is what really happened and, um, you know, kind of like the Black Sox scandal or the steroid era or, or all the cheating that you've heard about over the years. I mean, was it the Dodgers and the Giants and the uh, famous playoff game when Bobby Thompson, you know, supposedly yeah. they were still inside? I mean, who knows? I think the bigger issue to keep our eyes on is how this Red Sox um, thing plays out. Because that, to me, the key player in all of this has been Alex Cora. Oh, yeah. And, and, and you look at that, and of course, which is hilarious, because he was on the Dodgers for 10 years. And you talk about, like, lack of loyalty, you know? <laughs> it's like, oh, man. Uh, but, but anyway, uh, I, think, I think the fallout of that investigation and what happens with that, I mean, I just, I wouldn't be surprised that the discipline there was depending on what the investigation shows, if it was not equal or, or worse. I mean, with A.J. Hinch here, though, like you mentioned, it's a one-year ban, and I'm with you 
with it when it comes to A.J. Hinch. I mean, I think the guy's going to manage in Major League Baseball again down the road, whether it's next year, the year after, three years down the road. I feel like his reputation isn't as hurt by this because he did, like he wasn't a part of it. He just didn't stop it. He just didn't get his players and his coaches together and say, hey, we can't do this anymore. Alex Cora, again, behind all of this, Cora, Beltron, and Hinch all gone from the Astros, Mets, and Red Sox. Given how this in the Red Sox investigation is still going on, what do you think Alex Cora's ban is going to be, considering that A.J. Hinch, a guy who didn't want to be involved in it, is banned for a year? Yeah, really, really, good, uh, really good point. Um, I could conceivably see... You know, anything from, you got to figure it's going to be at least double what Hinch got, right? Yeah. Because this was going on for, let's say, let's say Hinch did this or allowed this to go on for one or two years and he got a one year suspension and he did make active efforts to stop it in that he tried to, he broke the system down twice, but he didn't report it. He didn't, you know, that whole thing. He didn't make a more of an effort to stop it in that sense. Which I kind of somewhat understand a little bit because um, you obviously want to protect your players and you want to respect what your players are doing. But again, I think when it comes to cheating, you have to draw that line and you say, look, um, it'd be one thing if there was no rules on it and you were saying, oh, we're, we're interpreting the rules to say that we're allowed to do this because people still sign all the time. We're just using technology to do it. But the fact is, is there was a policy in play that said specifically you cannot do this. Yeah. And they did it anyway. So that's where the problem is. So I could conceivably see Alex Cora basically getting at least a two-year ban. But because he actively participated, you know, and, and obviously potentially was the, the schemer of the whole thing between him and Beltron and some of the players, um, and of course, he's got some really bad clips out there too of press conferences. Oh yeah, stuff where he's talk, talking about it. My guess would be somewhere between a five year and like a five year and a lifetime ban. Wow, I could see that could conceivably see something like that. And I think that the fact that the Red Sox got rid of him so quickly um, didn't wait around for the investigation to end. And and if, of course, look at Beltran didn't even get a chance to manage. No. Um, you know, which, which goes to show you how bad that is. And I don't think he'll ever manage again. And that's that's very disappointing so, for Carlos Beltran. Could have been a great manager. But so We'll see. I just, I, 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 I just highly doubt seeing a team coming in and uh, all that. I, I don't know. I mean, time changes everything, but... Um, I, I think Cora is going to get it pretty bad. And you mentioned with the Dodgers, 10 years. I mean, with the, we played for the Red Sox, too. Goes to Houston, wins a World Series behind that whole scheme. Goes to Boston, another sign-stealing investigation, wins a World Series there. All the footage and all of this, whether it's Alex Cora in that London series, that press conference talking about Carlos Beltran and the Yankees, whether it's Jose Altuve grabbing his jersey, going into the clubhouse uh, right after the celebration. Didn't even celebrate on the field initially. Immediately went into the dugout to change out of his jersey. It just all looks very suspicious. Uh, even Alex Bregman, like some of like his really cocky press conferences, talking about like, yeah, I knew a pitch was coming the entire time. It's like, well, now we know why. Um, but time will tell what will happen uh, this season. I think this is going to be a very intense season for the Houston Astros. But I wanted to switch gears now to college. I just wanted to pick your brain about this because it was a few months ago that the uh, NCAA announced their plans to allow college athletes to get paid uh, for the use of their names and images. What do you think has been the number one factor in not letting college athletes get paid in years past, even to the current day? Really good question. 
and I'm going to go a little bit different direction on this than you might think. You know, I think when this all first started, when you're talking about when the call maybe five, ten years ago was this idea of athletes need to be paid, when it really became more of a public discussion and it was in the public forum, I think there's one point I want to make about why it's happening, and then, um, or maybe two points, and then I, I think that'll kind of maybe help drive the discussion. But number one is is that uh, there's this great quote by Mike Rabel, who's the uh, head coach of the Tennessee Titans mm-hmm. and former uh, you know Patriot linebacker, and he said when somebody asked him one time how come the uh, NFL doesn't have a minor league, he quickly corrected them and said something on the lines of what are you talking about we have the NCAA these are all our coaches these are all our schools our institutions this is where we recruit from the NCAA is our minor league this is where we develop players you know this is why you see coaches going back and forth between the NFL and the NCAA and so it's a it's a very eye-opening quote but it also sort of I think speaks to the common sense of uh, and the obviousness of it all in that you look at the sports that have the biggest call for getting paid, it's football and basketball. And those are the two sports who have not invested in minor league uh, development. They use the NCAA to do that. And so in some sense, it is a little ironic when a player is saying, demanding that they want to be paid, or at least that's the narrative out in public. I think if you talk to many basketball players and football players, I think they're mostly appreciative that they have an opportunity to get an education and they have an opportunity to, um, to, to be on a platform, to be broadcasted to millions of people each Saturday, you know, or whatever, whenever the games are for basketball too. So I think that's like a major issue that's not being talked about. And you, you look at the NBA and they're like, okay, they have the G league now, which is formerly the D league. And you have, you know, obviously the Alliance folded, but then you have the XFL and then you have the pack pro football league, which is, uh, run by Tom Brady's agent, Don Yee. So you have these opportunities, but frankly, until the NFL really, truly invests into the minor league system, they're going to continue to use the NCAA. Oh, yeah. um, and, and basketball is the same way. It's just there's too much, there's too much money uh, you know, to be had there through broadcast dollars and merchandising that it's probably not going to change. Uh, this new system, particularly with the Fair Pay to Play Act in California, and the NCAA sort of reversing its decision that it will allow it. The biggest thing there is going to be the structure and how it plays out and what's the thresholds and who's going to get paid. But I think the biggest issue there is that, you know, this really sort of boils down to this is not the NCAA's fault. Yes, do they profit from it? But the reality of it is, is that, um, you know, the NCAA has always been there. The NCAA was there before the NFL, was there before the NBA. So it's, it's that these other businesses have come along and basically said, okay, we're going to attach on to the NCAA, take our talent from there. Um, and again, the NCAA is not innocent in all this, so to speak, but um, I think that the lack of a minor league has really driven this. Mm-hmm. And 
uh, and we'll see how that, you know, how that plays out. Yeah, I'm not really sure because, again, like, they're all, I, I mean, they're not getting paid to play, but they're going to school for free to play, you know? Like, they're all getting scholarships. And then on top of uh, uh, getting paid, to me, uh, some college athletes, like you see the Baker Mayfields of the world, uh, who are now struggling after launching their own brand, uh, Johnny, or yeah, Johnny Manziel, uh, completely went off the face of the earth with his whole scandal. And I just feel like a lot of college athletes, if they get paid in a sense, are just like a few of them could go off the rails, you know, like some college athletes have it together as, as you see, but some of them don't. Well, here's, here's what I would say to the sort of second point. Um, I'd forgotten it for a second there, but you reminded me of it was, you know, obviously the first is the minor league issue, right? Which is, which is, which is not an NCAA problem. That's the NFL and the NBA have decided not to do that. Whereas you don't hear about these complaints in baseball, hockey, or soccer. Because, which leads to the second point, which is about choice, right? Mm-hmm. The biggest thing here is choice. It's like, if a player has the opportunity to go pro or go to college, then there can be no call for getting paid. Because that player made that choice or his talent deemed where he should go, Right? Because he's saying, okay, I'm going to college. Okay, well, then you know what the rules of the system are. And if you're going to go to college, you have to follow those rules. And if you want to go pro, great. You can make money immediately. And frankly, talent will mostly drive that, right? Talent and hype. Now, what I do like about this image and likeness, name, image, and likeness uh, movement is that we're in an era where you can go direct to consumer, right? So, you know, you have a situation where... um, you know, you have social media and you have all these streaming platforms and um, just the article and podcast that I did uh, this morning and last week were all about innovations in entertainment and sports. Mm-hmm. And one of the technologies was first-person view sports where uh, these athletes will, you know, be wearing a camera on their helmet to give first-person view of, you know, a running back or a quarterback, which I think would be great, not for an entire game, but it'd be nice to be like, Hey, on that last touchdown, let's 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 break into the the uh, uh, sort of show the quarterback to you on you know what he saw on the field and how he made that pass, right? Um, or, or a punt returner or something like that. Of course, that brings up safety issues too. Right. Um, uh, but but anyway, my point being is that there's so many ways that these athletes now can reach fans. I mean, uh, you have basketball, high school basketball stars that have potentially more Instagram followers than NBA stars and so uh, or NBA players who are getting paid millions of dollars. And so I think being, having people being able to profit from that is not necessarily a bad thing. I think, again, it's the structure of how is it set up? Is the money put into a trust until the player graduates? Um, but I think people are going to be very surprised about the small market of this, yeah. meaning that I think... People go, oh, this law is going to pass and 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 it's going to be put into effect, and everybody's going to be making millions of dollars. Well, no, the market's still going to drive who you know who's worth X dollars, right? So it's 
your starting left tackle is not going to drive the same market as the quarterback. Right, okay, so like the last thing I wanted to ask you because again, I don't want to waste too much of your time here, but uh, last weekend, obviously, I, I, I'm going to go as much as say this was probably the biggest tragedy in sports history with the helicopter crash in uh, Thousand Oaks, of course, taking the lives of three families, including Kobe and uh, Gianna Bryant. Uh, with with all the news coming out uh, over these past couple days regarding uh, the helicopter and uh, the legal ramifications of it flying in that foggy weather on Sunday, do you think that Kobe Bryant's helicopter was legal to fly in those conditions uh, that it was uh, in last Sunday because again it said that there were special uh, special rules or special regulations that allowed it to fly but given that the uh, how foggy it was that day was like anybody else was it legal to fly no really good question and I don't know I mean I'm not a pilot and not mm-hmm. familiar sort of yeah. with, with the specifics of it but I would say that at least what I've seen from the news and um, obviously a tragic accident and it is it's one of those things too where there is um, helicopter crashes and plane crashes that do happen right oh, yeah. and it's generally the ones that include celebrities that are that are obviously more followed and you know Kobe was beloved in Los Angeles and beloved by the basketball world and the entertainment world and his fans and his, and his, and his you know uh, friends and family of course um you know, obviously there was a report that they were given clearance to fly in the fo- you know, fog. So in some sense, if there is liability, it probably goes both ways. You know, it probably goes towards who gave the clearance, why do they give the clearance. Mm-hmm. You know, it may go to the pilot, depending on what happened there. Um, I'm sure that, I mean, I think that the, these investigations, from what I read, you know, takes anywhere from nine months to a year. So um, we probably won't know. Uh, what exactly went down. I know that there was another uh, piece of information that came out that said that uh, Kobe's particular helicopter did not have a certain device right, that yeah. would, you know, I, I don't know exactly what that device was going to do, but something in terms of dealing with fog and um, sort of detecting, uh, I think it was detecting gr- the ground and sort of distance between you and the ground, um, you know, in terms of... Uh, uh, you know, obviously, when when sight couldn't be sort of used, um, it's just it's a tragic thing. But it, it's there's a history of sort of this occurring. I think, you know, when you look at you know uh, there was the old Buddy Holly airplane crash. Yeah. Uh, there was the, uh, I mean, how many famous uh, you know artists and and um, you know musicians over the years, unfortunately, have passed in those crashes and it, it seems to me that a lot of the times um, you know that these things occur in sort of bad weather or failed mechanics and obviously you mix those two things together and you, that's a recipe for disaster. Oh, 100%. I mean, just uh, off the top of my head, there was Roberto Clemente, Thurman Munson back in the 70s, Roy Halladay just a few years ago on his own commercial right. flight. I mean, and now this one with Kobe Bryant. Do you think that, I mean, not that this is going to be a law by any means, but do you feel as if, given all these tragedies, you mentioned all those musicians, a lot of famous people in general, I feel like the famous people are kind of the outliers here because they, they're the ones in the helicopters and they're the ones being reported on the news most of the time. I mean, there's been reports uh, in Hawaii over the past few months that there were lost uh, plan- planes and helicopters in uh, Hawaii. Do you feel as if these 
athletes should maybe uh, reconsider their use of transportation. I mean, I know a lot of them, uh, and Kobe Bryant, to his credit, uh, used helicopters for 25-plus years as an easier uh, way to spend more time with his kids and his family. But I feel like in this instance, there's just way too many deaths going on via helicopter crash. Yeah, it's, it's a tough one, right? Because part of it's convenience, right? Part of it is... Um, avoiding traffic, especially in Los Angeles, and really in any major city. And of course, most sports stars and entertainers are going to live near major cities because that's where either their performances are, or that's where you know the deal making is done uh, with their agents and lawyers and managers. It, it, it is. It is. Um, I think part of it is like a primacy and recency thing, meaning that um, you know I'm sure that there'll come a time. You know, unfortunately, where this will happen again. And I think part of it is that, you know, generally athletes and entertainers are going to be the ones using exclusive transportation, you know, uh, modes, right? Right. And so they're going to be flying in helicopters and be flying in private planes. And because of their celebrity, you're more likely to hear about it. Whereas, let's say, if some unknown millionaire that you never heard before that started some dot-com company back in the 90s, you know, died in a plane crash, as unfortunate as that would be, you probably wouldn't hear about it, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, but because, you know, Kobe is who he is and because the loss of life was so significant in terms of nine lives and I think people, unfortunately, when it comes to death, will want to look for somebody to blame or, and especially when it's a celebrity, there's always the question of conspiracy and I mean, and just think about every death that's occurred, you know, and you, you look at sort of, um, and even Elvis's death, and it was just sort of like, oh, well, is he really dead, you know? And right. It's just, it's just, it's like, or, or sort of what happened, or was there, you know, some, even Princess Diana, same thing. It's like, well, what really happened? And was she killed by somebody? Was it done on purpose? Yeah. You know, I think for me, it's just, you kind of have to somewhat try to look at it logically and look at it from a standpoint that, it's a tragic loss of life, and you just have to hope that time sort of heals all wounds and you're able to move on from it, you know, especially the families. The last thing I want to leave you with is just uh, given a California sports lawyer um, founding it, you have believe in sports law. Um, given your uh, occupation, why, and your profession, why um, start the podcast? Why kind of get that word out there with believe in sports law? Well, really good question, again, uh, and it's, it's been terrific talking with you, uh, and I can see why you've You've got a great show there. You know, you're really good with the interviews. and um, Thanks. I appreciate know. it. <laughs> yeah. Really good conversation. Really good conversationalist. So I, I appreciate the conversation. I, I would say this, that there's this quote that I sort of live my business by, and it's by a guy named Jonathan Perleman, who is uh, one of the head agents over at ICM, which is an agency here in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. And he says, uh, content is king, but distribution is queen, and she wears the pants. <laughs> and it's a great funny quote and really what it's saying is is that you know you could have the greatest content in the world you could have the greatest name in the world you could be the greatest lawyer the greatest podcaster doesn't matter but unless you have a platform to distribute on nobody's going to know about it yep. and so when I was approached by Believe to do a show it was the perfect timing because you know for me I was in a situation going 
I have a lot of content. I write, you know, weekly articles. There's a lot of stuff that I study and I read and I see in my practice and see in my daily life. It would make sense to have, you know, some content being pushed out there beyond just writing articles. And of course, podcasting is a huge industry now. And, um, you know, Spotify has gotten into it. And, um, you know, there's all these great platforms and distributors that are out there. And so I didn't want to start something on my own because you need distribution. Right. You know, you need, you need to be able to scale in that sense uh, and, and sort of get your name out there. And so that's kind of where I came up with it, you know, or agreed to do it. Um, and of course, it's like anything else. The more you do it, the more comfortable you get. And, and I think the first podcast I did, I'm like, what am I doing? And <laughs> uh, Yeah, I'm there. I'm there with you, know, you. But as long as you have a structure and, you know, you got an outline or a plan about what you're doing, I mean, uh, I think it, it, it can come pretty naturally the more that you, the more that you do it. And that, of course, is Believe in Sports Law. Check it out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, any of the streaming podcast platforms. Jeremy Evans, thanks again uh, for taking the time out of your day to talk. I know it's been almost an hour now. I said it was going to be quick, but that, that, that's usually how it goes. <laughs> all, right. all good. I appreciate it, and I'm honored that you thought of me, and uh, I'll look forward to, uh, to listening to your show. Thanks once again to California sports lawyer Jeremy Evans for coming on the show. This was episode 153 presented by Belly Up Sports. Remember to go follow Belly Up Sports at Belly Up Sports on the Twitter. And remember, we're also sponsored by TickPick. Use the promo code OSHO10, capital O-S-H-O-W-10, for $10 off your next order using, that's right, you guessed it, TickPick.com. Go use it right now. Mecca Nutrition, capital O-S-H-O-W-20. That's OSHO20 for $20 off your next order for all proteins creatines test boosters you name it mecha nutrition's got it all if you're into banging weights eating steaks and sleeping apes remember one more time swallows the goal size of the prize hit it listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform check us out at believe.com and search for b-l-e-a-v on youtube you know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks that's what our podcast people are the worst brings you with each episode i'm rachel And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.